So it's a real privilege to be kicking off the series. And as a leadership team, as Jens shared, we know it's going to be incredibly significant to each of you personally in the life of the church and in the city. We know it's going to be significant. We know as a result of what's spoken about in these, in these weeks ahead, there's going to be things that God puts on your heart, maybe that he's already put on your heart, that will have a significant impact in the city. We believe that because God wants to see impact. And the key heart of the series, as the title goes, is vision. And vision's a picture of a preferred future. So Ian shared about, about God saying, the world isn't right, and this is how I want it to be. And a process became uh, into being. And that's what vision is, a dictionary de- definition. I looked for, through a few, but it says a mental image of what the future could or should be like. Something that you see mentally, it's not there yet, but it's what the, what the future could or should be like. Proverbs 29 verse 18. I don't have it up on the screen, but a number of you may know it. It says that without vision, without prophetic vision, some translations would say, people perish. And that's true in many senses. A lack of vision leads to hopelessness in our lives. A lack of true godly vision leads to that. And it's why many elderly people will often be going and they may be going into a number of years and then either their partner dies or the job that they've had is taken away from them or they can no longer complete that task and suddenly their life goes downhill very rapidly. And it's because there's a lack of vision. There's been a lack of hopelessness. Depression comes, anxiety comes. Whereas a a life filled with vision leads to purpose and leads to hope. Vision will help us live through the most difficult of circumstances and it will help us to achieve what Corky shared, what we didn't think was possible. So it's incredibly powerful when we look at a godly vision. It comes in different shapes and forms. So some of you may have heard of a man called Henry Ford. Uh, He was the one responsible for seeing what the motor car could be for everyday people. He was the one for going, how is it possible for there to be an affordable vehicle that actually the majority of people could own? That was the vision that he saw, and he started to put it into process with very little assets or money at his disposal. Martin Luther King had a vision for what the nation of America could look like if there was truly equality between the races. He saw that in the future. It wasn't there yet, but he saw it, and he started to act on that vision until it came to pass. Many other examples, those are just two that I love. And as Ian shared, we can have vision for what our marriage could look like, for how we see our children developing as they grow older, for what our next holiday could look like. We can have vision in the big things, we can have it in the small things, just as important. And it's important that we get that through this series. There's vision that's unique to each of us as individuals, and then there's a vision that each of us should have. So there's ones that God will put on your heart things for you to to do in the future, to do now, that are specific to your situation, your gift set that God's given you, the family you've been brought up in, your geographic location, your vocation. There's going to be things that are specific to you. But then there's the actual global vision. And for us as Christ followers, we should have the vision to see many people come to faith in Christ through each of us to be discipled. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, where it talks about the fact that Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. That's huge. And often we can discount it and we can go, but Lord, where am I supposed to be going in life? You haven't given me something specific. Oh, he has. (laughs) We can be doing that every single day, regardless of where we live, regardless of what family we come from, regardless of what work we have. That's a vision from God. It's what he wants to see happen. It's what we want to see happen, what we should want to see happen. And so we have that vision. 
And each of us as Christ followers, I understand some of you here might not be Christ followers. Maybe you're visiting and you're so welcome. It's great to have you on the journey with us. If you are Christ followers, the vision you should have that filters through everything else is, Lord, you've called me to make disciples of all nations. The vision you have is to see a world, to see heaven filled with people who are following Christ. And you've called me to that. And then below that, there's other specific things that he'll give to each of us. And I want us through these few weeks, we want us as a leadership team to ask God to give us what he has for us in 2018 and beyond from the small to the big. And I want you to be asking him, Lord, what is the picture you have for my marriage? What is, what is it that you have for my marriage that I can start working towards? What about my family and my kids? If you have, what is, what is that? What about relationships around me? Where is it that you want those to be? The business that I'm working in, that I might own or that I'm working in, Lord, what is it that you want that to look like? And how can I be a part of that? The key difference between a worldly vision and a godly vision, this is interesting. I started to really think about this because there's people who aren't Christ followers who've had great vision. There's people who've had amazing vision and there's been real change in the world, great change in the world as a result of them. So what is the difference between worldly vision and godly vision? And I would say eternal impact. Because a, a great vision that can maybe help a nation that hasn't had a viable water source to have that, uh, Henry Ford's ones with motor vehicles, those ones definitely benefit people's lives. They do. They help us. They're great benefits. But do they have an eternal impact that goes beyond this world? And I'd say that's the key difference. From the small to the big, a godly vision is one that has the capacity, that has the capability to impact people for eternity. And it can do that. A business and how you run a business can do that. How you operate in your marriage can do that. How you raise your kids can do that. And that's the difference between the two. A godly vision will draw us and others towards Christ in each aspect of our lives. So the book of Nehemiah is one man's story of catching a vision from God and running with it until completion. Catching a picture, a vision from God and running with it until completion. The story of Nehemiah is primarily his personal journey of seeing something that wasn't right in the Jewish nation and asking the question and saying, Lord, is it that you want me to be part of restoring what's been lost? He asked the question and he had the opportunity. Our heart is that each of you would hear God speak clearly during the series and that you would gain an understanding of where he's taking you and you would start acting in faith on the basis of what he places on your heart. And so let's read from Nehemiah together. I've got a few short points on it. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love you to turn there. Nehemiah is Old Testament, sort of goes 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. So if you open in the middle, you sort of get to Psalms, Proverbs, and then backtrack a bit, and you'll find it. But it is going to be up on the screen as well. We're going to read together from just verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And this is how it goes. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakiliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. That's the ninth month of the year. So, so sort of uh, according to their calendars, the October-November period later because of how their calendars worked. Uh, in the 20th year, and that's the 20th year of a king called Artaxerxes. So in the 20th year of his reign. That's what it's talking about, just to explain it as I go. I was in Susa, the capital. It was one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. It was the king's winter residence. 
So it's where the king spent his winters, where his winter palace was, and then he moved between different capital seats, but this was the one where he spent. Uh, and it was in this time, verse 2, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile. I'll share a bit more of the history just now. And concerning Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments the statutes and the rules that were commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's what ended up happening. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This is talking about the king. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So we're going to dive into that. But the book of Nehemiah is thought to be written partly by himself because an, an amount of the book he writes in first person. So he writes in first person, other parts aren't. So it's thought to be written partly by himself and partly by another person. And that person who wrote it is also expected to have written Ezra, the book before, which is very similar and flows into Nehemiah, as well as 1 and 2 Chronicles. So it's very interesting that we've got a book that's partly written by someone and partly from someone who has a bird's eye view of the situation. To give you a bit of historical context, the Jewish people were defeated and taken into exile in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Some of you may have heard of him in 586 BC. But in 539 BC, about 50 years later, King Cyrus of Persia overthrew the Babylonian king, making Persia one of the greatest powerhouses of the time. And the Babylonian king at that time was a guy called Nabonidus. I always like those old school names. They may be irrelevant to you, but I enjoy them. This meant that Cyrus took control of a vast empire, which included the territory that used to belong to the former kingdoms of Judah and Israel. So he took over those. Babylon was controlling those at the time. And then the, the Persian people took over all of it. So it was a massive kingdom that ruled at that time. And Cyrus, interestingly enough, issued a decree to then say that the Jewish people who had been in exile, who had been kicked out of their lands, he issued a decree to say, it's okay, guys, you can return. You can return wherever you are, wherever you've been scattered, you're allowed to move back to your areas. You're start, allowed to start living there and rebuilding that. 
And the book of Ezra covers the first move of those exiles back to their lands, back to Jerusalem and surrounding areas. So that, that covers it initially. And the first time that they moved was just after that. So Cyrus issued the decree 539. And then a year to three years after that, there was a huge move of exiles back into their areas. And in fact, the temple in Jerusalem, which had been smashed in all of the, the wars, was then rebuilt in 516 BC. So it was actually rebuilt. And then Ezra chapter 7, it would be really good for you to read back in Ezra and catch the flow of it, until Nehemiah chapter 13. So a big chunk that we're looking through, cover the period of 458 to 433 BC. Ezra returned to Jerusalem in 458 BC, and Nehemiah a number of years later in 445 BC, and that's where we pick up the story now. So there's been exiles who've returned, they've been living in Jerusalem, they've been building lifetime, uh, or, or their lives again, and now the word comes from Nehemiah's brother to say, hey listen, things aren't actually as they should be, and it's now the process where Nehemiah starts to ask, should he go back to help with this rebuilding? And between this time and between 423 BC, which is the period that Nehemiah spans, Nehemiah actually goes backwards and forwards a number of times between his job in the Persian capitals and back to Jerusalem as well. So we pick up the story, and Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes. The king had been reigning for 20 years, and as I said, this was the cold period of the year. Now, cupbearer to the king, I used to always think of it as a youngster, as sort of a waiter. That's what I sort of thought. Whenever I read in the Bible, I was like, oh, lame, that poor guy, he was a waiter. Um, although I was also a waiter through my university years, so I did manage to spill a lot of things on a lot of people, and so it was cut short, and I decided to take up other part-time work. But that's what I thought of it. And then the more that you research, you realize that the cupbearer was an incredibly high office. The cupbearer was a very, very specific position wasn't like a waiter at all. This person was regularly in the king's presence and held the king's trust. Very few people were entertained in the courts of the king, but the cupbearer was there each and every day. He provided safety for the king to ensure that the king wasn't being poisoned, and so many times he had to taste the wine first. So the cupbearers would die if there was poisoning because they were the testing point. But they were trusted. They were trusted with secrets. They would hear what was spoken about in those courts. And they were a very, very high position. And so whilst we don't know much about Nehemiah's family, he would have been well looked after and in a very comfortable position in life. He would have had his own house probably adjacent to the palace. And he would have been very well looked after. His family would not be in want at all. Some of you may have heard of it. There's other biblical characters who got to that place. Joseph and the like as well. And this could have been where Nehemiah was content to stay until his brother and others came to visit and shared about his homeland, Jerusalem. And suddenly, his world was turned upside down because he chose to open his eyes. He could have been content in the comfort of where he was doing the job that he was, but when they spoke, he chose to open his eyes. Look at this in verse 1. The words, sorry, verse 2. So it talks about where he was, and then in verse 2, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them. I asked them. He actually asked the question of how things were. He wasn't so comfortable in his life and comfortable in his own little bubble that he was isolated from greater issues at large. He chose to ask the question. First point is that a godly vision makes you ask the question. A godly vision makes you just ask the question as Nehemiah did. 
It takes your eyes off yourself and opens them to your surroundings, to things happening beyond your bubble. That's what God's vision for your life will be, something that takes you beyond your bubble. Vision opens your eyes to something that isn't right, to something that could be better. It might be your marriage, it might be your business, it might be your neighborhood or your city. But a God-given vision shows you that things could be that aren't yet. And for some of you today, this is a step that you haven't taken before or you haven't taken for a number of years. You haven't asked the question. What the Holy Spirit would say to you today is to just ask. To take your eyes off yourself, to take your eyes off the bubble that you're in and the family bubble, and to just ask the question of, Lord, is there something else? Is there more? Is there something that you're asking me to step into that I've been close to before? You may have slipped into the comfortable life, that one that's going through the motions, and the Holy Spirit is now challenging you to ask that question, to ask what your personal walk with God could be like, to ask what your marriage could be like, what your family could be like, your workplace, the church, the nation. I want to challenge you to ask that question today and to not block out God's voice. Because when you ask a question like that, He will speak to you. Because He is more desperate than you to see you fulfill what He's called you to on this earth. The question is, are you open to what He might say? So Nehemiah asked the question, and the answer wasn't a great one. <laughs> so he thought, okay, well, let me just ask the question, and look at what comes back to him. <laughs> it's not the nicest answer. It's a big problem. He asks it, and this is what they say. The remnant in the province that survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. In a general casual conversation with your brother you haven't seen for a while and friends, it's not really what you'd like to hear. Rather than say, oh, things are great, everything's amazing in Jerusalem, enjoy how things are going with you in Persia and in Susa, it looks like you're doing well, oh, great, see you guys in the next few months. No, he heard something really tough. He heard that things weren't right at all. And in asking, he realized that the present situation didn't fit his mental Im image of what it could be and should be. So when he asked them, he was obviously maybe picturing his mind what Jerusalem uh, should look like, God's, God's house and God's people. When the answer came back, he realized that there was a massive gap between his mental image, the vision of what it could be, and what it was at the time. That leads us on to the second thing, that a godly vision brings you to your knees in prayer. A godly vision brings you to your knees in prayer. It's great to hear Jane sharing about trusting in the Lord. And what a godly vision does, it brings you to your knees to say, God, I realize that actually you're in control. You're the safest place for me to be, and I need your advice on the situation. That's why in verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, so the first thing that Nehemiah did, wasn't the last thing, he didn't get frantic and go, oh my goodness, I've got to work out what to do with Jerusalem. Before that, the first thing he did was come to God. That's what we need to be as well. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down, I wept and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So that was his first response, to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I've just seen and I've just noticed that things are not right. They're not right in the old people's city where I used to be. They're not right in my marriage. They're not right with my kids. They're not right in the workplace. So I've noticed that. What are you saying about the situation? That was his first port of call, was to get on his knees and ask God, what is my role in this situation? And for each one of us today, when we see that something isn't right, 
our first response needs to be time with God. It's often our last or it's down the line. But our first response needs to be, Lord, what are you saying about this? Before action, we need to sit in his presence and ask for his heart for the situation. That must be our first port of call, our first priority. And if not, we may well act without his leading. And I know for myself, uh, sometimes being a bit of an energizer bunny with millions of ideas going through my head, it's very easy to act wildly when I see something's not right and often not actually achieve what God would want because I haven't bothered to ask him what I should do in the situation, which I'm trying to learn. So we want to act with God's leading and his directing. So firstly, we ask the question. Secondly, godly vision brings us to our knees. Thirdly, it leads you to take ownership of the problem, to take ownership for not to be someone else's, but to be yours. Verse six, take a bit of a jump. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you. So he's now praying. He's taken this on himself. He's saying, Lord, this issue I've seen, I am taking upon myself. Then look at what he says. It's so interesting. He jumps in and he says, for the people of Israel, your servants. So he's praying on their behalf. He's taking ownership of his people, the people of Israel. And he says, even I and my father's house have sinned. Now, he probably hasn't been there for a long time. He might not have even been there when there are initial issues that caused the exile in Jerusalem, but he's taking it on himself. He's saying, I realize, God, that the people that I associate with, we've messed up, and I don't want it to be that way. I realize even my father's house or generations before me may have messed up as well. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments. So it's very interesting that he takes this on. He may, have actually, may not have actually been the specific cause, but he takes ownership of the problem. He not only asked God to forgive the nation of Israel for what they've done wrong, but he asked for forgiveness personally and on behalf of his family. Such a challenge for us when we see problems to take the ownership. It's easy to dish it out and say, oh, I'm sure someone else could sort that out. Oh Lord, that I wasn't involved in what caused that problem. It was nothing to do with me. Let them sort it out. But what a godly vision does is lead you to say, actually, Lord, is it that I can be part of the solution even if I haven't been part of the problem? In fact, specifically because I haven't been part of the problem, can you use me as a Christ follower to be part of the solution? So a godly vision changes your perspective from being someone else's problem that someone else can be the solution to, to you and I being the solution. We take ownership of the problems. Instead of saying, it's the teacher's job to discipline my child, or my wife should sort out, sort out the marriage issues, it's her fault anyway, or the rubbish collection on my road is the other neighbor's problem, it's not mine, because frankly, you know, there's 11 of them on the road, leave it to the 11, not me as the single, <laughs> leave it to the rest of the houses, or the lack of orphan care, that's another church or organization's problem. Instead, we ask God to say, Lord, I've seen the problem, and are you calling me to be the solution? So that's an important aspect of what he did. He took ownership. The next thing that vision does is it leads you away from the comfortable life. A godly vision will lead you away from the comfortable life. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servant who delights to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of man. So Nehemiah's been praying, he's been asking God what he should do, and he obviously hears God say, well, actually, this is a problem I want you to be part of. You need to go and get clearance from the king to move 
to this area to help with the problem. And he was very comfortable. And things were going well in his life, and I'm sure that he was doing a good job. I think he was doing an upright job. They were comfortable. But the godly vision led him away from the comfortable life. We're going to find out more about this next week when Ian preaches. But he hears from God that he should be part of the solution to see Jerusalem built. And that would require talking to the king. But he's well looked after. He's respected. Things are going well. Why would he risk throwing it away? Why would you risk throwing away a comfortable life when God might put something crazy and wild on your heart? Well, a godly vision will lead you from a comfortable life because it leads you to be part of the solution in a broken world rather than protecting your own. It's what it does. A godly vision will lead you to be part of a solution in a broken world rather than maintaining the comfort of your own. It leads you to get into the mess and the dirt of a world ravaged by sin instead of keeping your hands and feet clean. It is what Jesus did. He left the perfection of heaven, as Ian shared, to get into the mess of sin and be part of the solution. And he calls us to be the same. So the final two things in the last moments we have together. A God-given vision will lead you to act in faith. Corky shared briefly about the, possible beca- the impossible becoming possible. And a God-given vision will lead you to step out in faith. There will be an element of unknown. There will be an element where you need to lean not on your own understanding and lead on King Jesus' understanding. And this is what he says in verse 11. He says, Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He had no idea how it was going to turn out. He had no idea whether it was going to turn in death. Why are you going against me or why are you wanting to leave? That's how kings operate in those days. But he stepped out in faith. He stepped out in faith. The task might have seemed impossible, terrifying, risky, and all the other thoughts that we get on our mind when God puts a huge vision on our heart. But he knew God was bigger than any problems he could face, and he stepped out in faith. He believed God was bigger than his finite understanding and that God wanted to use him. It's important to note as well, and this is just a little aside, that Nehemiah gained permission from the king. He was now asking to gain permission. He could have fled, and he could have headed across there to help rebuild and said, well, this is what God said. I've got to do it. I've just got to go. But he went through the proper channels. And I love that. I love the fact that he could have gone as a renegade, could have gone as a bit of a Rambo, off on his own mission. But he was like, actually, I'm a man in a certain position. I'm a man under responsibility. I'm actually going to ask. It's important that I do this. So he went through the right channels. Friends, you may have a vision for a child of yours who's absolutely lost coming back to God. Hold on to it. Maybe it's for a marriage that seems beyond repair. Hold on to God's vision to see that restored. Maybe it's for a business that seems destined for closure. Maybe for a nation-changing vision that's impossible on your own. Embrace that vision. Take it to God and step out in faith. And the last thing is, a God-given vision opens the door to a better future. A God-given vision opens the door to a better future. Much more of this is going to come in the weeks ahead, but this vision that God gave to Nehemiah opened the door to a preferred future coming to pass in Jerusalem. And for each of you, what he speaks on your heart, what he puts on your heart and in your mind, that vision of a preferred future, something better than what it is now that's what he has for you to achieve to open that door to a better future so i want to challenge you as i close each of you today to open your eyes open your eyes to ask the question 
to get down on your knees and then to step out in faith. It's essential that you and I have a godly vision for our lives. Firstly, God's global vision of making disciples of all nations. You can get busy doing that each day of your life. But we should ask God for a vision for the small. We should ask Him for a vision for our marriage, for our workplace, for our families, for our community, for our church, for the nation and the nations. I'm so expectant to hear many testimonies of God giving each and every one of you specific vision and things that He tweaks and adjusts in your life where there's massive change in your life, in this church and beyond as you ask the question. And as we do, we just need to keep in the front of our minds the God who gives vision, is the, who's the ultimate vision giver, is the one who has the greatest vision himself, the one who opened his eyes to a problem, the problem of a broken and sin-filled world, who took ownership of the problem, who stepped into our world, who stepped out of the comfort of heaven, out of the comfortable life, into the mess of this world, and in turn saw people have an opportunity to be united with him forever. Let Jesus Christ fuel your vision, and as a leadership team, we wait expectantly to see what the Lord does in our hearts at harvest through this series. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a privilege to open your word. Thank you that it is timeless. Thank you that it is your word. Thank you that whilst this was written many years ago, whilst Nehemiah's story is one that happened many, many years ago, you speak to us through it. It's for us today. And for each person represented here, for each family represented here, each business, each initiative. Father, I ask that you would help us to stop in the busyness of life to ask the question, to ask you for vision, and to know that we can trust you to such an extent that if you put something on our heart, if we step out in faith, you will help us see it through to completion. I pray for families here. I pray for marriages. I pray for businesses, and I pray for initiatives. I pray for this church, for our neighborhoods, for our city. Ask, Lord Jesus, that over these next few weeks, this afternoon, this evening, that you would give us your vision that allows us to see dramatic transformation personally, corporately, and in our communities. Holy Spirit, we wait on you. He's speaking to some of you now. He's dropping things in your heart. He's dropping things close to home further. For some of you, it's a vision or something that's been on your heart for five, ten years, for some of you longer. And he's saying, I haven't forgotten. That's still something I've placed on your heart. Some of you need to know that. It hasn't been forgotten. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be a family at Harvest who rest on you and then we step out in faith and then we see the picture, the mental image we have of a preferred future come to pass as we act on the vision you give us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.